We are in Colossians again this morning, so open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, continuing where we left off last week, Colossians chapter 2, and uh, let's pick it up in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, staying on the right course requires following directions, which also includes listening to warnings. For example, when you learn to drive, you must know both positive and negative road signs. There are positive road signs that keep you where you need to be. They tell you what to do, a one-way street, a detour, a yield sign. But there are also negative road signs that alert you to danger, like bridge out, or sharp turn, slow down, like when we head into Dead Man's Curve in downtown Cleveland. Those are really important warnings. And in Colossians chapter 2, the apostle is giving us both positive instruction and negative warnings. And today's verses contain warnings that follow the instruction that we have been hearing. So if you look back a little bit in the context, you notice, like what we covered uh, last week, that the word therefore in verse 16 is there for a reason. And I continue to teach you that. When you see the word therefore, look to see what it is there for. Therefore, Paul says, avoid these dangers, these errors. Listen to my warnings. Why? Because I've just told you all of the positive messages that are connected to your identity in Christ. So the big idea this morning is this. Embracing your complete identity in Christ protects you from three deadly errors that will derail your spiritual life. 
So Paul has been grounding us in Christ, rooting and grounding us in our identity in Christ in preparation for warnings about errors, theological errors, that will cripple you. In fact, they will get you off course. They will derail your Christian life. And so last week we looked at verses 11 through 15. So let me just remind you of some of the wonderful truths that belong to those who are in Christ. We noted in verse 11 that when we came to Christ, our old nature was cut away as the controlling force of our lives, and Christ Jesus created within us a new person. We are new creatures in Christ. And then in verse 12, we learned that, that we were united with Christ at that moment of salvation. We were immersed in the body, the church made a part of his body. We were made alive, verse 13 says. We were dead. We were spiritually dead, and God made us alive. The Holy Spirit breathed new life into us via the gospel. We saw in verse 14 that we were forgiven. What a wonderful truth that God forgave us all our trespasses when we came to Christ. Why? Because Christ had canceled the record of debt that stood against us. How? By nailing it to the cross through his sinless offering. And then we noted in verse 15 that we entered the realm of victory in Christ. And so Paul's saying, in order for us to make progress toward maturity in Christ, we must embrace these truths. But there's also another practical benefit, and that is they serve to be protection for us. So in addition to embracing these wonderful truths about our identity in Christ, we must also watch out for deadly teachings that will cause you to go astray. And there are three deadly errors that Paul alerts us to. First, we must avoid legalism. Verses 16 and 17. We must avoid legalism. Legalism is this. Legalism is trusting in your ability to keep laws and restrictions rather than depending on God's grace as the way to be accepted by God. Notice, legalism is not the presence or absence of standards. Some people would say, well, you have, you have just really, really high standards. You're kind of legalistic. That really isn't the issue. We all have different convictions and which lead to us having different standards. The issue with legalism is where is your trust? Where is your heart? The legalist trusts in his or her ability to keep laws and restrictions as that which then makes them acceptable before God, which is contrary to grace. And so we come to God on the basis of grace, recognizing that we could not ever, if given 10 trillion lifetimes or more, could we ever have earned God's favor because we are by nature sinners. And so we we come to God depending on his grace. Too often we then 
slip back into law-keeping as the way we measure our acceptance before God. The legalism that Paul is addressing here is legalism that is clinging to Old Testament laws. We saw a little bit of that last Sunday morning. And, and those trapped in this error were judging other Christians who understood that these laws no longer applied to them in Christ because Christ had fulfilled the law. And Paul then mentions three specific areas of the law that were being imposed on some of the Colossian believers. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So the legalists were saying, you've got to keep keeping these Old Testament laws. And in their heart, were judging those who did not keep those Old Testament laws. Laws. The first area pertains to food and drink. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, if you remember, there are places in the Old Testament that speak of foods as being either unclean or clean. And so there were dietary restrictions for the Jewish people. And these legalists were saying, that's still the way it is even as a Christian. There are clean things to eat and there are unclean things to eat. And so some of the new believers in Colossae were being led astray by dietary laws which they then imposed on other Christians. You know, don't eat pork or don't eat any meat. Eat only vegetables. Follow the Daniel diet that Daniel the prophet followed. And, and all of these things, and do all of these things, and you will be more acceptable to God. Now, some people may choose certain dietary restrictions simply because of preference, or perhaps for their health. Perhaps there are health reasons why they restrict their diet in some way. But that differs very, very much from the problem in Colossae. That differs from adding some kind of spiritual value to your choice, which then causes you in your heart to feel as though you are more spiritual than someone else because they take part in something that you restrict yourself from. It's that which Paul is warning against. Let me give you a funny example of of our own family. In in the 1990s, we were homeschooling our first six kids. And in in the 1990s, some of you understand this, there were some goofy things happening in the homeschooling movement. And um, and it it was at times hard to kind of know, okay, what's biblical and what's not. And... and, um, there were dietary restrictions that became popular. And I remember my wife and I sometimes saying out loud, you know, are we, are we bad Christians or lousy parents because we don't grind our own flour? <laughs> like, are, are we really corrupting our kids because we buy bread at the store? I mean, we had our first five kids in five years. Okay, so there was no time for grinding flour and baking bread, okay? Uh, You know, 
So, um, and, and we homeschooled because we just believed it was what God was leading us to do. We believed it was what was best for our family. But little did we know that for some people, it became a religion itself, which then caused them to separate themselves from other believers who didn't do things exactly the way that they did them. You know, I, sometimes our, our daughters, we, we joke and they say, Mom, Dad, you know, we think we, we were traumatized by denim jumpers and tennis shoes. <laughs> you know, it was just, you know, that was just the thing to do. And so you could spot one of us like a mile away. Um, but it was just part of the culture. And that's what it was. It was a culture. There was nothing biblical or unbiblical about it. But there was this sense of pressure that, that we felt to conform to the opinions of, of other people. So there are those issues of dietary restrictions, questions of food, also questions of drink. Um, considering the context, this is probably referring to Old Testament Nazarite vows uh, that, that some new Christians were being told that they had to follow. Uh, one of the things that the Nazarite vows included was total abstinence from wine or strong drink. And uh, you will find in the Bible um, many, many warnings against the overconsumption of alcohol and drunkenness. Uh, but it does not contain a blanket prohibition or condemnation. To get drunk is a sin for the Christian because we are not to be controlled by wine, Ephesians 5 says, but to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. However, the Bible does not forbid the moderate use of wine if that is something a Christian chooses to do. Even the Apostle Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He needed some wine for his own health. In the New Testament, this then becomes an area of Christian liberty where we are free to partake or we are free to abstain and hopefully without judgment upon each other. Some Christians practice total abstinence because they find it to be most helpful to their spiritual lives because drunkenness was a part of their past, something we did before we got saved. And we don't ever want to go there again. And, and so it's a means of, of, of avoiding temptation. Others abstain for health reasons. Some believers choose to exercise their freedom to drink alcohol, and they are free to do so provided they never allow themselves to be controlled by it. That's the issue. According to Romans 14, those who partake must also be careful that they do not become a stumbling block to those who choose to abstain. Paul writes in, in Romans 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you, Paul says, to pass judgment 
on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. There's issues there of legalism in regard to food and drink. He then also points out another area, second area of the law, holy days and festivals, religious festivals, he says, or with regard to a festival or a new moon. A new moon was a monthly uh, festival in the Jewish uh, calendar. And the legalists in Colossae were judging new believers for not strictly following Old Testament religious holidays that were a part of the old covenant that was given to the Jewish people. But now, in Christ, those laws have been fulfilled. So no longer is there an obligation to celebrate holy days because for the believer in Christ, every day is holy. Every day is to be dedicated to the Lord. Every day that the Lord gives us breath is to be dedicated to Christ. And yet there is freedom. Again, Romans 14 continues. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Listen, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord." So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So there is Christian liberty, Paul is saying, in in the carrying out of some of these um, areas of personal application of Christian conviction. And so Paul's saying, let no one pass judgment on you in those areas of food and drink, Religious, holidays, holy days, festivals. And then thirdly, he mentions Sabbath. The legalists in Colossae required believers to practice the Old Testament Sabbath day, that is, Saturday, with all of its laws and restrictions. A modern-day example of this is the cult known as Seventh-day Adventism. Founded in 1845, uh, SDA requires gathering on Saturday because it is the Sabbath, the Old Testament Sabbath, and not gathering on Sunday. They also deny the reality of hell and they require their members to follow certain Old Testament dietary and ceremonial laws. And Paul is saying that is an error to avoid. He says legalism is a deadly error because it detracts from the finished work of Jesus Christ who is the Passover lamb. This is why New Testament believers like us, we do not gather on Saturday, but we gather on Sunday, which is the Lord's day, which is the day Jesus rose again from 
the grave. Because Sunday is our day of rest and worship, not because we are celebrating the physical creation, but because we are celebrating the new spiritual creation that Jesus Christ has brought about. And so every Sunday, we exalt Christ and celebrate his finished work. And if you've been here for any length of time, you can see that. Even in the songs that we sing, Christ lifted up, Christ exalted. We are reminded of our desperate need for him at all times. So what then is the core issue with legalism? in this area of these laws. Well, verse 17 answers the question. These are a shadow of things to come. What these? These, the food and drink laws, the holy days, the festivals, the Sabbath, they were good. They're given by God to his people, but they were given to be a shadow of a person who was coming who is the ultimate And so just as when we're walking around, we cast, our body casts a shadow, so Christ casts a shadow. The shadow is the Old Testament law. And so he's saying to these believers, you are chasing shadows instead of recognizing the glorious substance that already belongs to you in Christ. So the core issue with legalism is this. Legalism promotes self and demotes Christ. That's the bottom line issue. It promotes a trust in self rather than a humble surrender to Christ. And we don't ever want to do anything that demotes Christ. I like the way the Grace and Truth Study Bible uh, explains these verses. Uh, It says, Such observances were intended to help people understand what Christ would accomplish when he came. Now that Christ has come, these observances are unnecessary. Maintaining these rituals is like focusing on a shadow rather than the person that casts the shadow. Critical understanding. That's what verse 17 is all about. So legalism is harmful because it teaches believers to focus on the shadow instead of the person who's casting the shadow. It promotes self and demotes Christ. There's a second deadly error to avoid. Number two, avoid mysticism. Verses 18 and 19. Well, what is mysticism? Mysticism is trusting in higher level spiritual experiences rather than the finished work of Christ as the grounds of your connection with God. So it's eyes off of Christ, eyes on myself, eyes on my glorious heavenly spiritual experiences. Rather than disciplining our minds and our hearts to constantly look at Christ and his finished work as the only basis by which we may have a connection with God, that is, fellowship with 
God. And we've seen this already in the book of Colossians, that one of the struggles that was going on uh, was that of angel worship. False teachers exalted angels and, and were telling people that, that they should be using angels as mediators to get closer to God. But they also trusted, Paul says, in their visions. He says, verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. We'll, we'll come back to that one in, in a bit because he addresses it again later. And worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So these were false teachers who were enamored by these goosebump-like spiritual experiences that they had, and they considered that to be the authority of their life rather than Scripture, rather than Christ and his word. And they were trusting in these so-called visions and higher-level spiritual experiences. And, and sadly, as you know, this has not died off. There is even today an infatuation with angels. I mean, go into any bookstore and you can find dozens of books about angels and connecting with your angel. And, and if you've been to a, a funeral of, of an unbeliever recently, you've probably heard things like, well, isn't it wonderful that she is now an angel? Or that he, he's in the stars looking down upon us right now. He's, he is a star. All this mystical mumbo-jumbo that is not according to Christ. It's not according to God's word. And Paul gives us two reasons why mysticism is dangerous. First, he says it appears humble, but it's actually fueled by pride. He says they're puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, a fleshly mind mind, puffed up with some kind of false humility that, that thinks or says, you know, well, I'm too humble, I'm too lowly before uh, God to go directly to him, so I'm going to go to God through an angel instead. I, per, I prefer to approach God through an angel. Or if you were raised Roman Catholic like I was, then you were taught that you cannot go directly to God, but that instead you were told to go to Jesus through Mary. All of these are false because Scripture says there is one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. No angels, no dead people, one mediator, the risen, ascended, sitting at the right hand of God, Christ Jesus. Mysticism, even today, can be really subtle. Um, it, it's more often than we realize. I mean, I, I kind of even tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I've prayed about it and God told me. And often what they claim God told them is actually contrary to the Bible. And when I look them in the eye and say, do you think that God is a liar? They don't know what to say. 
When I say, do you think that God would tell you to do something different than what he's already told all of us to do in his word? There's no answer. Because what? God told me. God said this to me. I prayed and God told me. Well, I'm glad you prayed. And maybe the spirit of God is leading you in a certain way, but you better check it out according to the scriptures, to see if whatever voice you heard was a true voice. Because there's lots of voices speaking in this world, and very few of them are true. So we've got to go back to scripture, to the word of God. God does not lie. He, he will not tell us one thing in his word and then another thing in private to our fleshly mind. He doesn't work that way. So beware of mysticism. And mysticism mysticism is also dangerous, uh, Paul says, because it appeals to an unspiritual person who is disconnected from Christ. Look at verse 19. And not only are they puffed up with a sensuous mind, but they're not holding fast to the head. They're not connected, that word can mean. They're not connected to Christ from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Mysticism appeals primarily to unbelievers, people who already refuse to subject themselves to the authority of Christ as given to us in his word. And so their refusal to submit to scripture because of their mysticism reveals the true condition of their heart, Paul says, they're not connected to the head. They say they're in the body of Christ, but they're actually an amputated part of the body. They are not connected to Christ. They are not connected to the head. The mystic is disconnected from Christ, who is the only source of life. Look at verse 19. It's from Christ, the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Beware of mysticism. And there's a third deadly error to avoid, and that is asceticism. Number three, avoid asceticism. Paul mentions it twice in these verses, once in 18, once in 23. What is it? Asceticism is trusting in self-denial rather than union with Christ as the means to greater holiness and approval from God. In other words, your spirituality is measured by your absence of pleasure in earthly things rather than the positive presence of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, I'm more spiritual than that person because I don't do this, 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 this. I abstain from this, 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 this. When all the while they can be one of the most hateful people you've ever met. Because when they open their mouth, the fruit of the Spirit does not come out. The proof of spiritual growth 
is that the fruit of the Spirit is becoming more and more evident in our lives. Not the fruit of the flesh. So it doesn't matter how many things you give up for God. That's not the way to become spiritual. You can sell everything you have and go and be a monk somewhere in a cave. And you know who's going to be there waiting for you when you get there? Yourself. And your own wicked, sinful nature that has longings that are opposed to God. It doesn't work. It doesn't lead to maturity in Christ. Now that is not to say, please understand, that is not to say that the Lord may not lead us to be self-discipline. In fact, self-discipline is a virtue. Self-discipline is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to discipline ourselves for godliness. And that involves very many areas of our lives. But we cross a line when we see those things not merely as helpful to our spiritual lives, but we then become dependent upon them as that which makes us acceptable to God. Do you see the difference? And so there's that constant evaluation that we're making in our hearts. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this to honor myself, to puff myself up, or am I doing this to honor Christ? And Paul gives four reasons asceticism is dangerous. First, verse 20, it opposes the reality of our union with Christ. Verse 20, if with Christ you've died, or since you've died with Christ, to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? In other words, don't you realize who you are in Christ? Remember the context of this. Paul has been just constantly teaching us about the riches of our union with Christ. He's saying, why then would you now move away from union with Christ to asceticism? Measuring yourself by the level of your self-denial rather than the merits of Christ. And secondly, it's worldliness and pride. And this is one of the most ironic things about asceticism is because the ascetic is guaranteed the one who thinks he's not worldly. Other people are worldly because they do this, this, this. I'm not worldly because I don't do that, that, that. And yet Paul says, it actually is proof that you are still alive to the world. The world is still what really gets you moving, not your union with Christ. But you've died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Jesus used the same logic when he was confronting the, the Pharisees. You know, do not think it's the stuff that you eat that corrupts you. It's what comes out of you that demonstrates your corruption. It's also based on man-made commands. Look at verse 22. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts, and teachings. Not based on God's commands, but based on man-made commands. And then fourthly, it appears wise, but energizes 
our sinful flesh, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. It appears from the outset, looking in from the outside, it looks like this would be the holy way to go. It looks like this would be the road to godliness, but it actually isn't because it promotes a self-made religion, severity to the body. But look at the last phrase. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you can practice the most extreme self-denial you want to, and it's never going to get to changing your heart. Never. Only Christ, through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit of God, can change you from the inside out, not from the outside in. Physical restrictions, Paul is saying, have no power to restrain fleshly passions or change the heart. They might make you feel more spiritual, but they will not help you become more like Christ. These are errors, deadly errors, to avoid. These are errors that will derail you and get you off track and prevent you from following Christ and becoming fully mature in him. You know, maybe you sometimes wonder, why, do I, why, Paul, do you spend so much time teaching us about the fullness of our identity in Christ? Well, Not only do I just want you to bask in the glory of all that you are in Jesus, but it's also for defensive reasons. It's to build a defense in you against error. The best defense against being taken captive by false teachings like the three that we've looked at today is to understand and embrace what it means that you are a new creature in Christ in union with him, fully accepted, fully adopted into the family of God and you have nothing to prove to God because Jesus has already done it. And now we learn to walk with Christ. Knowing the positive road signs keeps you alert to the warnings and the dangers that lie ahead. Let me just leave you with one more verse. Turn back a couple books to Galatians. The older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more this verse resonates with me. In the Lord's providence and goodness and grace, it was one of the first verses that I memorized as a believer 40 years ago around this time of year is when God saved me. I, I can't believe it. 40 years. It's flown by. But look at Galatians 2.20. If you've never committed this verse to memory, I encourage you to do so. It will help you to grow in Christ, but it will help also 
to guard you from some of the errors that sweep through the church at times. I have been, past tense, I have been crucified with Christ. What does Paul mean? Well, that means he's justified before God. He's in union with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's another way of saying, my old self died with Christ. And so that old self doesn't live any longer because Christ lives in me, the new self. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not by works, not by legalism, not by mysticism, not by asceticism. I live by faith in the Son of God. What about the Son of God? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Believer, we are in union with this Jesus, an inseparable union, fully accepted by God in him. And now we are called to worship this Christ and follow him in the freedom that he purchased for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a glorious, glorious Savior we have, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, died for our sins, died for our unrighteousness, died for our propensity to try to earn our salvation. And he paid the debt in full. There's no more debt to pay. And now we trust in him, not in ourselves. We trust in this Savior and his work that he has already accomplished for us. God, help us to walk in your spirit, to walk in the way of your word, which we know is the way of the spirit because he inspired it. Guard our hearts, Lord, from these errors or any others that arise from our flesh and our propensity to want to work for our salvation. God, free us up that we might rest fully in the Lord Jesus who has done it all by his grace. In his name we pray.